everybody. Welcome back to Reading During Recess. I'm Terry LaRue, and I'm a first grade teacher. And I'm Sarah Hansen, and I'm a writer. And this is our 15th episode, woo, where we are going to be returning to a series of unfortunate events and talking about books six and seven. Yes. The Arasat's Elevator is the sixth novel in the children's series, A Series of Unfortunate Events by Lemony Snicket, and it was published in March 2001. And The Vile Village is the seventh book in the series, and it was published in May 2001. If you haven't already done so, we recommend that you go back and listen to episodes 12 and 13 first, because those are the episodes where we talk about the first five books in the series. So if you want to go in chronological order, you can start with those episodes. But if you don't care, that's your business. So in case it's been a while since you guys have read the Ersatz Elevator, the sixth book opens with Violet, Klaus, and Sunny headed to their new home on 667 Dark Avenue, a penthouse that's in the same city that they grew up in. So that's a pretty special moment for them. But unfortunately, the street is completely pitch black. All the light is completely blocked by huge, thick trees. And on top of that, when the Baudelaire's enter the building, they learn from the doorman that all of the elevators in the enormous penthouse are disabled, as elevators and also light are currently out, uh, which is to say unfashionable at the moment. This forces the Baudelaire's to walk up. It's either 48 or 84. Uh, The doorman couldn't tell you, and neither can I. But either way, that's many flights. Upstairs to their new home, and when they do eventually finish the climb, they meet their new guardians, Esme and Jerome Squalor. Excellent last name. So Esme and Jerome Squalor are a married couple, and they are polar opposites. Jerome is kind, gentle, inviting, and welcomes the kids and gives them aqueous martinis, which are non-alcoholic martinis it's just water in a martini glass with an olive in it is that right i mean honestly i I would rather have an aqueous martini than a regular one i'm gonna be honest for sure although honestly water that tastes like olive get that out of here i don't want that yeah jesus but you know they're parched after walking up 48 or 84 flights of stairs so Mm. they drink aqueous martini the reason why it's being offered to them also is because it's in meaning fashionable that's like the the in drink of the moment everybody is drinking aqueous martinis which makes sense because esme jerome's wife and the uh city's sixth most important financial advisor is completely obsessed with popularity she is selfish and vain and she's the one who lays out for the kids that everything is either in or out and fortunately for them orphans are currently in (laughs) When I was a kid, even, I thought that was so funny that they <laughs> adopted kids because it was in. <laughs> They're like, we have to do it right now. <laughs> oh, my God. And specifically, like, it's orphans, you know? Yes. Like, both of the mm-hmm. parents have to be dead. Exactly. Orphans are in high demand. Regular children, eh, mm-hmm. take or leave them. <laughs> Can we quickly comment on Esme's pride in being the city's sixth most important financial advisor? Yes. It's mentioned many times. And I remember that it was like a part of her character, but I, in my memory, I was like, it's definitely the first or second. <laughs> but it's the sixth. I also love that the city has no name. Again, in keeping with the very surreal 
landscape of Lemony Snicket's universe, the city is just referred to as the city. Mm-hmm. We yep. don't get any indication. And this is the city with various <laughs> districts. Yeah. Including uh, Mr. Poe's banking district, where all the banks are, like, I guess just right next to each other. There's also the station. Isn't there a stationary district? There is a stationary district. Mm-hmm. That is correct. Oh, man. I could I could kill a little bit of time there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all right. Moving on. So, per usual, their new home is disappointing. It is so enormous that they regularly get lost. Violet's workbench has no tools in it because tools are out. And the library only has books on the history of in and out items. And Sunny's room only has soft toys. So she can't bite them. Esme ignores the children entirely except to tell them a few days in that their concern over the quagmires is boring. Because as you recall, (laughs) the last book ended with the quagmires being kidnapped by Count Olaf. And Esme is like, yeah, all right. Have anything else to talk about? And (laughs) (laughs) we've all had that friend who just won't stop telling you about the same problem. And sometimes that friend is three orphans. (laughs) And that problem is that they're triplet friends got kidnapped by an evil count when they were pretending to be you. And you're like, oh my god, we get it. (laughs) We've all been there. (laughs) And so to cheer them up, each child is gifted with an ill-fitting pinstripe suit because pinstripe suits are in. Which is so sad because Jerome had all these plans for toys or gifts that he wanted to give them and Sonny's was the best ever. Like, for Violet, he was like, I wanted to get Violet, like, a toolkit. She loves tools. I wanted to get Klaus, this really interesting almanac. And Sunny's was like, I wanted to get her a large bronze square. <laughs> He's like, I think it would be nice to bite and very attractive. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, So thoughtful. But instead, they all get pinstripe suits that are for adults, so they're far too large. Yeah. Did I ever tell you that as a, s- <laughs> as a sixth grader, I had a pinstripe hat and a pair of pinstripe pants I think anyway it was my goal and the hat I want to be very clear it was like a little newsboy hat which by the way I think are coming back into style but probably not pinstripe ones and it was my dream to own an entire pinstripe outfit and I had the audacity to come home and question why I was being bullied (laughs) (laughs) like bitch what (laughs) Not to pull the whole what was she wearing, but (laughs) what was she wearing? (laughs) No! (laughs) All right. Did I deserve it? Maybe. So anyway, this to say that rereading that scene is traumatizing. Um, Lips continue. So Esme also tells them about the upcoming in auction, where they will be auctioning off only items that are in. And introduces them to auctioneer Gunther, who is, of course... Count Olaf, uh, with a bad disguise and an even worse accent. But as per usual, neither Jerome nor Esme believe the Baudelaire's. Instead, Jerome takes the children to Cafe Salmonella, (laughs) which is a salmon-themed restaurant in the Fish District, because (gasps) salmon are in. 
And so this is quite possibly the best scene in the entire series. Terry, would you like to talk a little bit more about what happens at Cafe Salmonella? I would love to talk to you about Cafe Salmonella. The first thing you need to understand is that the image that brings us into chapter five is of a irritated looking waiter wearing a full salmon costume. But yes, so this restaurant is located in the fish district and is entirely salmon themed. It says there are pictures of salmon on the walls and drawings of salmon on the menu. And the waiters and waitresses were dressed up in salmon costumes, which made it difficult for them to carry plates and trays. The tables were decorated with vases full of salmon instead of flowers. And of course, all the food the Cafe Salmonella served had something to do with salmon. Their costumed waiter first brought bowls of creamy salmon soup to the table. That sounds good. And then some chilled salmon salad. And then some broiled salmon served with salmon ravioli and a salmon butter sauce for a main course. And by the time the waiter brought over salmon pie with a scoop of salmon ice cream on top, the children never wanted to have another bite of salmon again. Ugh. Oh, and of course, Lemmy Sika tells us that there is nothing particularly wrong with salmon, of course, but like caramel candy, strawberry yogurt, and liquid carpet cleaner, if you eat too much of it, you are not going to enjoy your meal. <laughs> Good advice. <laughs> so Jerome, um, in keeping with the Baudelaire's history of Guardians, is completely fucking useless. And they try to explain to him that Gunther, who is, I guess, what ethnicity would you assume Gun uh, Count Olaf is pretending to be? Some somewhere or from Europe. It's none at all. I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely made up. I'm feeling like Eastern European. Yeah, I feel like maybe Eastern European. What's the name of the made-up <laughs> country in Princess Diaries? Oh my God, Genovia. Genovia. Anyway, uh, back to business. Uh, the bottlers try to tell Jerome that Gunther is Count Olaf in disguise, that his accent is fake, that he is here to kidnap them. And instead of listening to them, Jerome accuses them of xenophobia. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is like a devastating blow. <laughs> yeah, so Jerome accuses them of xenophobia, uh, claiming that the only reason that Gunther intimidates them is because of his accent. And then gives them this whole spiel about Galileo being from Europe, so Violet. <laughs> Would Violet be afraid of Galileo? And then she's like, obviously not. And he's like, and Klaus, have you ever heard of the writer Junichiro Tanizaki, who came from a country in Asia? Would you be afraid of him? Of course not, Klaus said. But, and Sonny, Jerome continued. The sharp-toothed mountain lion can be found in a number of countries in North America. Would you be afraid if you met a mountain lion? Natesh! Sonny said, which meant something like, of course I would. Mountain lions are wild animals. Uh, but yeah, anyway. So Jerome <laughs> just really shoots him down there. This was how I learned the word xenophobia. That is also where I learned the word xenophobia. And if any of you are new to the word xenophobia and would like to use it in a sentence, you could say uh, Sarah and Terry were very xenophobic in their episode about Matilda, <laughs> where they made fun of the British. <laughs> I was really nervous about where that sentence was going. <laughs> I think by episode 15, it's safe to cancel us. Yeah, we've made our we, mark. We did. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs> Whew. Continue. All right. So after Jerome chastises the Baudelaire's for being xenophobic, they all return to the penthouse together, and they hear from the doorman who watches the stairs that Gunther apparently hasn't left the building back in their apartment. However, Esme claims that he left a long time ago. 
Dun, dun, dun. And if you remember, mm-hmm, the only way to leave, given that the elevators are disabled, should be through the stairs, meaning that the doorman should have seen him. Please, please remember, elevators are... Out. So the next morning, the Baudelaire's <laughs> speculate on Olaf slash Gunther's plan and decide to use a breadcrumb trail, a la Hansel and Gretel, to search the penthouse for him. Because if you remember, the penthouse is so big... Uh, that they regularly get lost brushing their teeth. So they don't find Gunther, but in their search of the building, Klaus discovers that there is one elevator on each floor except for the top floor, which has two. This means that the second ersatz elevator is just an empty shaft. Ersatz means fake. So the Baudelaire's speculate that this is where Olaf is hiding down at the bottom, and the siblings use cords and ties and rope and lots of other found items from the squalor's apartment to lower themselves down the empty shaft. At the bottom, they find the quagmires trapped inside a large cage, which is just a visual that I love. <laughs> like, where did Olaf get the cage? The kid-sized cage. I guess it could be a dog crate. But it's not funny that way. I need it to be like a cartoon cage. Yeah, I imagine. Like a wily Coyote kind of cage. Exactly. And so the Quagmires tell them that Olaf is planning to smuggle them out of the country by hiding them inside one of the objects at the inn auction, which an associate of Olaf's will bid on. And so the Baudelaire's climb back Pause. up. Sarah, would you be so kind as to tell us what... What, even in their darkest hour, Isadora insists on doing? Oh, I think you know, listeners. <laughs> Isadora Quagmire cannot be stopped. Yeah, so she insists on reciting her couplets about Olaf's plan. But it's, it's so much worse, because she always speaks second, which makes you want to throttle her. Duncan talks first, and he's like, I know what Olaf is up to. I'm a journalist. Every second we spend with him, he talks, so I know everything that's going on. And he says, even though I'm a kidnap victim, I'm still a journalist. And I'm still a poet, Isadora said. <laughs> and opened her notebook. <laughs> on auction day, when the sun goes down, Gunther will sneak us out of town. <laughs> Frankly, I'm not surprised Esme doesn't want to hear about the Quagmires anymore because, like, I don't want to hear from this bitch either. And I'm still a poet. Who asked? <laughs> <laughs> and I get that they're the Baudelaire's only friends and it's understandable that they would want them to be happy and well. I certainly don't want them to be kidnapped or murdered just because I don't care for them. But I will say I'm not particularly sure why the Baudelaire's are interested in spending time with them. Let's leave it at that. Anyway, moving on, because if I talk about Isadora, I'm just going to get so bad that we won't be able to finish the episode. I'm sorry, one last thing. A couplet with an end rhyme, and the rhyme is down in town. It's not impressive. No. It's not. Come on, this is so lazy. So after Isadora reads her poems, I'm sorry, poem, I'm sorry, two lines. <laughs> get her! The Baudelaire's decide that they need to climb back up the shaft to find some tools to try to free Duncan and Isadora from their cage. But when they come back down, the two have already been taken away by Olaf. It's a very sad scene. It sucks. You really feel for the Baudelaire's frustration. I really like that. I feel like Lemony Snicket doesn't like diminish their emotions. You know, they're children, but he uses words like grief and anguish mm. to describe how they feel, you know, when this 
continuously happens to them. And I don't know, I just kind of appreciate that. I think that children can resonate with those feelings more than adults necessarily give them credit for. Yeah. And I mean regular children, not just orphans who have lost their house in a fire and also uh, keep narrowly avoiding murder. Agreed. (laughs) (laughs) So back at the penthouse, the Baudelaire's look through the in-auction catalog, and they find a lot titled VFD. And obviously this is a big deal to them because those are the three letters that Duncan shouted out to them as he was dragged away by Olaf at the end of the fifth book. So they're certain that this is how Olaf is planning to smuggle the quagmires out of the country, and the Baudelaire's go to Esme and tell her everything. So Esme listens and acts distressed and says, of course, uh, we'll go to the auction right away to to stop Olaf. And leads them into the hall, opens the doors to the ersatz elevator, and shoves them down the empty shaft. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, as a kid, I remember reading that. My heart was pounding. Mm -hmm. Because she she just sweeps them in there. (laughs) I think it's the scariest thing that happens almost in any of the books. Yeah, it's nightmarish. You know, along with almost being devoured by man-eating leeches and mm, yeah. um, finding the corpse of your beloved uncle. Oh, and the giant uh, stone crusher. Oh, and the buzzsaw that that one lady stepped into. Mm. Other than that. <laughs> Incredibly enough, since this is only book six out of, what, 13, the Baudelaire's don't die, surprising no one, and instead land in a net about halfway down from where they hear Esme reveal that she knew all along who Gunther really was, that Count Olaf was her acting coach, and that she is actually in on the plan to kidnap the Quagmires. So that sucks. Catch a break. That does suck. (laughs) It's a very frustrating scene because you see the Baudelaire's place trust in this person who just really doesn't deserve it. And um, Mm -hmm. they have a history of doing that, poor things. Yep, goddammit. it. So the kids are, they're right in the middle of the elevator shaft. Yeah, so it's, they're too high up to jump out because they would hurt themselves, but they can't really climb out unless you're sunny and you have um, insane dental <laughs> skills. So <laughs> wild. Sunny uses her teeth to climb up the elevator shaft and she retrieves a rope and then she comes back down with the rope and they use the rope to climb the rest of the way down the elevator shaft because they understand that there is that the elevator shaft turns into a hallway at the bottom and they want to figure out what's on the other end of that hallway. So they travel along the hallway below and eventually come to a dead end, but when they pound on the ceiling above them, they realize that it's a trap door and opening it, they find themselves in the ashy ruins of their old home. That's a very melancholy scene. Nothing really comes of it, right? They don't find anything in there. They're only in there for a moment, but it's just, it's just sad. It's really sad. Oh, man. It's, I don't know why it makes me so sad that, that their, the remains of their house are just standing just there. Languishing there, yeah, yeah, that no one has, nothing's been done to the lot. Nobody's tried to restore the area. Yeah. It is very depressing. So they book it to the auction hall where the Baudelaire's find Jerome and beg him to buy them lot 50, which, uh, of course, is VFD. 
And Jerome initially agrees, but eventually the bidding starts to get very high and Jerome backs down. But Sunny bids, I believe, a thousand on the item and wins. Which I don't know why Sunny was the only one who was like, we could lie. <laughs> like, yeah. Sunny doesn't have a thousand dollars. Yeah, that also um, leads to one of my favorite lines in the entire book. Um, <laughs> Sunny says, a thousand. And Jerome says, where in the world did Sonny get that kind of money? Jerome asked Mr. Poe. Well, when the children were in boarding school, Mr. Poe answered, Sonny worked as a receptionist, but I had no idea that her salary was that high. (laughs) I love Mr. Poe. I know. (laughs) So Sonny successfully, they just hand the box over to her. And, of course, the Baudelaire's tear into it, assuming that they will find the quagmires inside. But instead, they are horrified to find that it contains only very fancy doilies. (laughs) Thousands and thousands of very fancy doilies. VFD. Yes, of course. So Gunther slips on these many thousands of doilies that spill out of the box, causing his disguise to come off. (laughs) This always happens. (laughs) I know. These disguises are hanging on by a thread, and I mean that quite literally. And the crowd recognizes him immediately, and he and Esme are both pursued. And once again, it is revealed that the fucking hook-handed man was there the whole time. He was the doorman. And once again, I'm sorry, I love the Baudelaire's, but I am getting, I am sick of these kids. How do they not recognize him at this point? I don't know. This man literally almost tore Violet's face off. He had Sonny in a birdcage. Yeah, it is astonishing, especially since the doorman is not wearing a mask. And nope. humans are supposed to... Maybe the Baudelaire's have that condition where they can't recognize <laughs> human faces. Where they have face blindness. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm thinking, I'm like, even a crow can recognize human faces. (laughs) Right? Oh, look at you being on topic for our next book. Yeah, yeah. you're right. That is horrifying. Oh, my God. Baudelaire's pull it together. Yeah, honestly, they have no right to get frustrated with anyone else in their lives who can't recognize Olaf. For the love of God. They're literally fooled by rubber hands. Yes. (laughs) Rubber hands. He's not concealing his face. I'm sorry. I think that the Baudelaire's are a little bit ableist if the only way that they can recognize a person is by his um, hook. Anyway. (laughs) We don't have to get into it. In addition to being xenophobic, like, I'm just going to say it. The Baudelaire's, like, come on, guys. Pull it together. Also, I mean, can we notice that he does not have a name? He's just the hook-handed man. Oh, it's terrible. The Baudelaire's are canceled. (laughs) So the quagmires are actually hidden in a different item at the auction, Lot 48, which is a giant statue of a red herring. Har, har, har. Uh, It's a a pretty good one for a kid's book. It is. It definitely went over my head as a kid. And in the chaos caused by the doilies, Olaf and his associates escape with the quagmires. And Jerome tells the orphans that he wants to keep them, but he insists on moving them far, far away so that Olaf cannot find them. But the Baudelaire's insist that they need to follow Olaf to save their friends. And Jerome says, yeah, okay, I'm not very brave, though, so good luck with that. (laughs) Devastating. I'm sorry, that's, 
that might be an even worse blow than Josephine. Because, like, mm-hmm. Josephine obviously is crippled by mental illness. Yeah. <laughs> her fear is so overwhelming that I honestly can't blame her for, like, giving the kids up because she never should have been taking care of kids to begin with. True. But Jerome, he had potential. And he's so sweet. Yeah, he's like, I'm sorry, I just don't have the courage. And he just gives them up to Mr. Poe. Doesn't he say something like, your mom always said I wasn't brave enough or something? Yeah. Yeah. So we get the, we get an indication in this book that Jerome is like old friends of the Baudelaire parents. And so, and then also the question of like, why is there a tunnel that leads from his apartment to the Baudelaire mansion? Lots of unanswered mm-hmm. questions. Why was he friends with the mother? We don't know. And if you remember, he begins to tell them that story of this will become more relevant when we read book 10. He tells them about a time that he and the Baudelaire's mother hiked Mount Fraught and mm-hmm. were attacked by a giant. And then Esme cuts him off. That's right. Yep. So the kids end up with Mr. Poe again. And that's the <sighs> end of the story. Oh, having a rough time of it. All right, so we're going to give you guys a little bit of a break from plot summaries. So before we jump into book seven, Sarah, do we want to share some just favorite scenes from this book? Yes. So a small anecdote. I love that Mr. Poe has been promoted. (laughs) At the beginning of this book, we find out that he's been promoted to be the vice president in charge of orphan affairs. I don't know. I think it's like, maybe there are no presidents in this universe. Because remember, Vice Vice Principal Nero is, and there's Mm -hmm. no principal. Yeah, so Mr. Poe is the vice president in charge of orphan affairs. Presumably he got this promotion because he's also now trying to figure out what's up with the quagmires. Um, He knows a lot of orphans. Yes. (laughs) It's just funny for a man as incompetent as him to receive a promotion. I like that orphans are, like, a well-recognized issue. Yeah. Like, it's not necessarily, like, kids in the foster care system, but it's, like, orphans are in or they're out. There's a vice president in charge of orphan affairs. Like, there's an orphan shack at the school. Yeah. People are very finely tuned to orphans. Yeah, it's, like, a specific identity group in society. (laughs) (laughs) One of my other... So I do think that this book, book six is like one of the scarier books in the series, particularly when they fall down the elevator shaft. (laughs) And then when they emerge in the ashes of their old home, that's just very creepy. But it's also, I think, one of the funniest books in the series. I feel like I've said that for a few of them, but I stand by it. And one of my favorite kind of running jokes throughout the book is all the list of things that are in or out. And you just get a sense of just how completely inane these fads are dark goes from being in to being out in a matter of hours and then of course they have to cut down all of the giant leafy trees outside of the apartment building yep so i compiled a list of some of the things that are stated to be in throughout the book Um, starting with of course aqueous martinis light and dark are both in at various points another beverage that's very in is parsley soda which sounds terrible orphans pinstripe suits salmon grapefruits bright blue cereal bowls billboards with photographs of weasels on them (laughs) 
magenta wallpaper, triangular picture frames, very fancy doilies, movies with waterfalls in them, cross-country skiing, garbage cans with letters of the alphabet stenciled all over them, <laughs> which is my personal favorite. I would absolutely own that. Mm-hmm. Um, very Sesame Street. That's yeah. the vibe I'm getting. Mm-hmm. Yellow paper clips, beach decor, and anything with chocolate sprinkles on it. I think my personal favorite has, I mean, it's a little obvious, but billboards with photographs of weasels on them. <laughs> I love it. Yep. I love that it's billboards specifically. It's not necessarily weasels. It's not even photographs of weasels. It's billboards with photographs of weasels. Right. And it's also amazing, too, because it's like billboards are specifically a medium that's used for advertising. So what is being advertised? Is it the weasels? Or is it like this is a Tiffany advertisement (laughs) featuring a weasel? I don't know. That might get me into Tiffany. Don Draper, thoughts? <laughs> it has to be simple but significant. <laughs> oh, man. I love this book. I love Sonny's little asides. So remember, if you guys remember from the earlier books, Sonny is a baby, so she's not really using language yet. But every so often, she's got these great little quips that she uses that I think probably fly over most kids. But there's a scene where the Baudelaire's are pulling together various items from the apartment to make their to make their homemade rope. And uh, Klaus says, I took these curtain poles down from some windows. They're a little bit like ropes, so I thought they might be useful. Armani, Sonny offered, holding up an armful of Jerome's neckties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love it. <laughs> Also, Esme pushing them down the elevator shaft. We've already talked about it, but it's just an all-time greatest hit, honestly. There's also, um, did you tell, we haven't told them about the visual effects. So, Snicket is so good with this. Uh, It's similar to how he, book three, I believe, where he fills the page with nevers. But anyway, Esme stretches out her other arm and used one of her long fingernails to push the up button. We'll take the elevator, she said, as the doors slid open. And then, with one last smile, she swept her arm forward and pushed the Baudelaire orphans into the darkness of the elevator shaft. The next two pages have no words and are only... Each page is covered by just a large, pitch-black square. Because, as Snicket says, sometimes words are not enough. There are some circumstances so utterly wretched that I cannot describe them in sentences or paragraphs, or even a whole series of books. And the terror and woe that the Baudelaire orphans felt after Esme pushed them into the elevator shaft is one of the most dreadful circumstances that can be represented only with two pages of utter darkness. Which I think is a really great effect for kids. Not to say that children are incapable of understanding the significance of being pushed down an elevator shaft, but I think it's wise to not rely only on words to express how hideous it would be to be pushed down into your presumed death. Lemony Snicket will often draw attention to the text as like a constructed object. And it provides that some sense of distance that we've talked about before, about how as a reader, you're very aware of the fact that you're being told a story, which I think makes it a little bit less scary because it's slightly less immersive than if it was being told in a way that felt completely realistic or in which the narrator felt completely invisible and so when he plays with the visuals in the book like that 
it helps, I think, draw attention to the different ways that the storytelling is working and is fun and also provides like that scary quality that we were talking about. Indeed. Another great moment in the book is when Sunny uses her teeth to climb up the inside of the empty elevator shaft. So what she does is she tilts her head and swings it forward to stick one of her teeth into the wall and then swings her head slightly and sticks another tooth from the other side of her mouth slightly higher up than the last one, eases the first tooth out and follows the same pattern to climb up the wall via her teeth. And how does Lumini Snicket describe the sound that it makes? Doesn't he say like it could... A rough sound that would make any dentist weep for hours. (laughs) It is hard to imagine without feeling slightly ill. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, so now it's time for, and now a word from us kids, where we read reviews written by kids, for kids, from Dogo Books. So book six was very well liked on Dogo Books. And Addie197 wrote a very long review that I will just read an excerpt of. She says, The Baudelaire's are questioning everything that people are telling them, but are being ignored because they are children. This is the way I connect to the book, because it can be very frustrating when people are dismissing every word you say just because of your age. I give this book five stars because it is so descriptive that you can paint a clear picture of what everything looks like. Five stars. Aw, great review, Addie. Mm-hmm. Love the text to self-connections. Uh, Cuddles13 says, read the whole series, and I seriously didn't see the relationship between Esme and Count Olaf coming. Four stars. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's any reason you would, seeing as this is the first book that she's mentioned in. Although I will say that they do a lot of, like, heavy flirting in their dialogue. They do. But if you remember from the third book, people are often horny for Count Olaf for no discernible reason. So That's true. I think you could be excused for for not assuming that they were together. And our last review comes from Anum, who said, It was kind of intersetting. I think he means interesting. It was kind of intersetting to find out what's in and what's out. <laughs> no Good, stars. I'm glad. Um, yeah. Seems like he might have missed the point of the book. Yeah. I, um, I really hope that he's using this text as gospel. Anum, you better run out to the store and get yourself some bright blue cereal bowls. A-S-A-P. Yep. Yeah, so there weren't a ton of reviews for book six, unfortunately. Well, that's not true. Actually, there were a fair number. There just weren't that many funny ones. And, you know. Disappointing. I don't need to waste y'all's time with the basic... Exactly, we've got a lot to do here. So now that we have heard from some children about (laughs) what is excellent in a series of unfortunate events, I thought we would ask an academic what she thinks. So here are some academic thoughts from Sarah Tundurup Linkus, who wrote the article, It's Off Book, Developing Serial Complexity Across Media in a Series of Unfortunate Events. This was published in the journal Children's Literature Association Quarterly in spring 2020. Linkus talks about how the series of unfortunate events series 
is self-reflexive and comments on its own narrative construction throughout the series. And she says, at first glance, Snicket represents an authoritative adult narrative voice, typical of didactic Victorian children's literature. He acts as the supercilious adult who often explains the moral of the story to the readers and diverges from the narrative in order to define the meaning of specific words that the reader are assumed not to know. However, Snicket's authority as a narrator is undermined as his explanations prove to be unreliable. Furthermore, he appears to lose control of the story, proving unable to affect its outcome. As Elizabeth Bullen notes, the narrative voice adopted by Lemony Snicket enacts a strategy of disempowered authority. He appears to be present and watching the orphans suffering in real time, but, like a documentary voiceover, he never intervenes to save his protagonists in ways that would disrupt the natural order of things or fate. Which I think is a really interesting point because obviously he's telling these stories from some distance, although it's not clear how much time has passed, mm-hmm. which is was always something that I was curious about. We sort of get some clues, especially in the seventh book, as to like at least what time frame Snicket exists in. But I think at this point, yes, we mm-hmm. don't really know anything for sure. Right. Like, are we looking, is he a historian? I don't know. But we get more information in book seven. But in true Snicket fashion, not much. Yes. So I think we're meant to infer by like the seventh book that he's probably like contemporaries with the Baudelaire's parents, you know? Yes perhaps even up here. Yes, but we don't really know that for the first half of the series. And so all we know is that he's writing to you from the present day and what happened to the Baudelaire's happened in the past. And um, you get that really frustrating tension because even I, you know, an adult reading these books who's read them many times, sometimes will like find myself hoping that things work out, even though I know that they won't. Yep. And then, of course, you're reminded of the fact that this has all already happened. And just because you're encountering it in the text in real time, it doesn't mean that it's happening right now. It's already happened. And the terrible things are already sealed and done. We get the sense that Lemony Snicket is kind of powerless, despite... Yeah, his knowledge... Uh, She writes, Snicket is unable to affect the outcome of the story just as he is unable to control the readers with his repeated warnings and prevent them from reading the books. In this way, the traditional power dynamics between the narrator and author and the child reader are subverted. Furthermore, as Austin demonstrates, Snicket's status as the fictional author of the series further serves to deconstruct his authority as Handler uses him to illustrate how untrustworthy the construction of author really is. The series thus promotes a child reader who is able to see through the adult's disguises handlers as well as Olaf's yes so this gets back to interesting um, mm-hmm. one of the things that we talked about in a previous episode where I believe Bruce Butt talked about how <laughs> the books kind of repeat the same gag over and over again and how he wasn't sure that that was something that we should be encouraging kid readers to enjoy because there's like a lack of critical thinking there but I do think that actually while the plots repeat themselves or the plot structures repeat themselves in many ways there are a lot of aspects of these books that are very unconventional and challenge children to think about literature and storytelling in a way that they never have before absolutely 
Let's move into now talking about book seven, which is The Vile Village. So we can begin with our plot summary. Book seven opens with the Baudelaire sitting in Mr. Poe's office, waiting to learn who their new guardian will be. Unfortunately, the Baudelaire's are beginning to be perceived as troublemakers because of their misfortune that seems to follow them wherever they go. And for this reason, other friends and family are not particularly interested in taking them in. <laughs> and for this reason, Mr. Poe's decided to follow the aphorism, it takes a village to raise a child and put them in care of an entire community. So he gives them a brochure that lists available towns, and the Baudelaire's find one titled VFD and choose it immediately. So on arriving in the town, they find that the village has a great number of strange rules created and enforced by the Council of Elders. Many of the rules involve doing chores and staying out of the way of the thousands of crows who live in the village and who follow a very specific roosting pattern. And the elders promise to keep the Baudelaire safe as their newest rule outlaws villains. And so they tell them, you know, it's, it's against the rules for a villain to be in the town of VFD, so... So don't sweat it. <laughs> but the Baudelaire's meet the village handyman Hector, whose home they'll be living in because none of the older people in the village are the least bit interested in housing, talking to, or even looking at the Baudelaire's. He tells them that the initials in the village's name stand for Village of Foul Devotees, a reference to the crows, who everybody in town is completely obsessed with. <laughs> and the Baudelaire's learn that the crows roost in the Nevermore tree, which is an enormous tree right outside Hector's house, and they roost there every sunset. So Hector shows them a couplet that he found underneath the tree, and the Baudelaire's recognize immediately that it was most likely written by Isadora, because who else writes such lousy poetry? <laughs> the Baudelaire's stay up all night hoping to see another couplet being delivered, and the next morning they do find a second couplet, but note that they have not seen anybody all night. That the next day in town, the siblings are forced to do chores for the individual townspeople. And as they are cleaning the crow-shaped fountain in the middle of town, an elder tells them that Count Olaf has been captured by the new chief of police, Officer Luciana. So while the imprisoned man does have a unibrow and an eye tattoo on his ankle, the man says that his name is Jacques, and the Baudelaire's immediately recognize that this man is not Count Olaf. And so Officer Luciana has captured the wrong man who's clearly different from Olaf just in demeanor. He's panicked and he but he tells the the Baudelaire's through the through the throng of people that he's so relieved that they're safe and begins to say something about their parents. But uh Officer Luciana stops him. And despite his and the Baudelaire's claims of innocence, the villagers plan to follow through with the punishment for any and all rule breaking, which is burning the offender at the stake. <laughs> I love that villages and cities in this universe operate on, I don't know, just a different legal system, just depending on yeah, where you are. They're like completely self-governed. Exactly. Like you can definitely just do that here. Yep. So Jacques is at risk of being burned at the stake. I pronounced his name Jacques as a child and literally have been doing that ever since. Even when I was, it was not until this read I know the name Jacques. I've heard it before. I've seen it written. But for some reason, specifically this book, I always read it as Jacques in my head. And anyway. <laughs> no, I get that. Certain misreads that get imprinted on you too young, you can never get rid of them. So 
Jacques is at risk of being burned at the stake and the Baudelaire's are trying to figure out a plan for how to find the quagmires and also how to prevent an innocent man from being murdered for Count Olaf's crimes. So back at the house, Violet helps Hector with his invention. So he has invented a self-sustaining hot air balloon mobile home. It's made of several hot air balloons and um, Hector dreams of using it to escape from his life in the village because the village makes him very nervous. And so he understandably (laughs) yeah so he offers to take the siblings with him up in the air when the self-sustaining hot air mobile home is ready the next morning the Baudelaire's find another one of Isadora's couplets and putting the three couplets that they now have together the Baudelaire's determine that the crows are somehow delivering the messages and that the quagmires are hidden somewhere in town so the siblings and Hector head uptown planning to use mob psychology to convince the town to free Jacques and when they arrive, however, they find that Jacques is already dead. This is the second dead body that the siblings have stumbled on. Yeah. What a traumatizing childhood. Mm-hmm. So Officer Luciana tells everybody that Detective Dupin will be the lead detective on the case. And the man who is introduced to them as Detective Dupin is, you guessed it, obviously Count Olaf. Uh, in disguise. I love this disguise. We'll talk more about yeah. it. But I also just realized that his name is Dupin, which is an amazing... Do you get it? Yeah, Do you get oh, it? Yeah, I get it. Because he's Dupin them. Mm-hmm. So Dupin tells the villagers that the Baudelaire's are responsible for the murder and the siblings are jailed in preparation for being burned at the stake. And Olaf, as Olaf takes them away to the cell, he reveals that he plans to smuggle one of them out in the morning to steal their fortune, leaving the other two behind to be roasted. Yikes. Sorry. So in their jail cell that night, uh, Klaus has the devastating realization that today is his 13th birthday. Yeah. It's one of the saddest scenes in the series. As if being 13 weren't hard enough. Right? Ugh. But thinking about his birthday causes him to remember a failed dessert for his 12th birthday, a lousy, soggy bread pudding, which gives Violet an idea. Violet and her siblings use the bread and the pitcher of water they were given along with the wooden bench to repeatedly pour the water on the cell wall, soak it up in the bread, wring the bread out like a sponge, and do it again. You're going to just have to suspend disbelief about how bread works. As along with most of Violet's inventions. Yes. And so this loosens the mortar of the brick wall. And as they work, Hector passes them a final couplet through their cell window. And Klaus realizes that the first letter of each line in the couplets spells out the word fountain. And so they conclude that the quagmires must be hidden inside Foul Fountain, which is in the village. And so soon after, the siblings use the bench as a battering ram to break through the loosened brick wall. Side note, the explanation that we are given in this story for why Isadora tells us this in code. You know, it's funny. I don't remember it bothering me as a kid. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. So they tell us in the book that like she has to send these messages in code because anyone could find them. And if Count Olaf or one of his associates found them and saw that Isadora had just written like, help, we're stuck in Foul Fountain, that they would just move the quagmire somewhere else. My feeling is that that's a risk worth taking. (laughs) Right? 
This is minimum. How many lines? How many couplets are there? Five? Minimum five days inside a fountain. And you're still, like, I mean, if Olaf finds those, he's going to be like, oh, yeah, that's one of these shitty poems that this annoying girl I carry around writes. And is probably still going to move them. In the interest of saving time and us from not having to read Isadora's poetry, I don't understand why she couldn't have kept it short and sweet. For the love of God. I'm sorry. Yeah. Maybe let Duncan take a crack at the coat. You know, like maybe <laughs> maybe let him write something. And just, I feel like his training as a journalist comes in handy when you're needing to be rescued and time and space are... Um, and you need some terse verse. You need to communicate <laughs> something short and sweet very quickly. Exactly. Like she's just really buries the lead like really really buries Fucking it Isadora. and and sarah and i are not idiots we get that this was done because this is a children's book i'm just like if you wanted to make me like isadora i'm just saying that this wasn't the way but i will say also again as a kid the plot hole didn't bother me at all i was like yep yeah, makes yes. perfect sense gotta keep gotta keep it a secret who knows who's mm -hmm. lurking around this town absolutely i mean Kids love code. Kids love communicating in ways they think other people can't understand, but everyone, of course, can. So um, once they freed themselves from the jail cell, the siblings immediately run to the fountain. And while climbing it, Sunny manages to avoid falling by biting into the eye of the crow. This causes the beak of the fountain to open, which releases the quagmires who are <laughs> soaking wet because they have been in there for five days. By their own design. Yeah. And the quagmires <laughs> explain that they stuck a wet couplet, just one, <laughs> to a crow's legs every day, <laughs> knowing that the crows would fly to the Nevermore tree that evening where their legs would dry <laughs> and the couplets would fall off. And they also try to share some information about Jacques, but are interrupted by an angry mob of villagers who chase them to Hector's house. But just as they are about to be caught, Hector flies overhead in his completed self-sustained hot air mobile home and sends down a ladder. So the Quagmires climb up the ladder first, followed by the Baudelaire's, but Detective Luciana uses a harpoon gun <laughs> to shoot the ladder, causing the rope to unravel. And so the Quagmires are able to make it to Hector safely, but the Baudelaire's are forced to climb down to avoid falling to their deaths. And when the Quagmires try to throw down their notebooks um, so that the Baudelaire's can have access to all of Duncan's intrepid journalism and also Isadora's poems. <laughs> Not Isadora, like at the edge of the balloon, like, wait, you'll need these. <laughs> so these notebooks are flying through the air. One of them is very valuable. Unfortunately, Officer Luciana hits and destroys them both with her harpoon, and the same harpoon hits and injures a crow, which, of course, angers the villagers. So they are furious at Detective Dupin. Dupin? It's funny, I'm like, can't, because in the Netflix series, he pronounces it like Dupin, like it's French. Oh. But Dupont it's a made-up name, so it's like your last name. There's no right or wrong way to say it. Thank you. Although, my... <laughs> All right, you're right. I forgot that I gave the world my family secrets. The last <laughs> episode we recorded. 
Yeah, if that joke went over your head, you gotta go back and listen to our Esperanza <laughs> Rising episode so you can get all the deets on the LaRue clan. So the villagers are furious at Detective Dupin slash Dupont for not caring about the crow. And so then the villagers decide that actually maybe they should like pay attention to this guy for like more than five <laughs> seconds at a time. And they're like, wait a second, he has one eyebrow. And so then they make him take off his shoe, realize he's Count Olaf. Olaf escapes and rides away with Officer Luciana, who is revealed to be bum bum bum. Esme Squalor, who was wearing a helmet that covered her face this whole time. Like, she never takes the helmet off, and they're just like, all right, yes. So the villagers rush to save the crow, because it's been pretty clearly established they care much more about crows than people. And the Baudelaire's take the opportunity to pick up the scraps of the Quagmire's notes, and now fugitives, they leave town toward an uncertain future. So this is the first book that really breaks the mold in the series, where it doesn't end with Mr. Poe retrieving them and preparing to find a new guardian for them. They're really just like fully on their own or self-sustaining. Wow. And you know who else is self-sustaining now? Sunny, she takes her first steps at the end of the book. That's, yeah, it's a very important book for growing up. We've got Klaus becomes a teen. Sunny takes her first steps. Violet is also there. (laughs) (laughs) So the opening of the Vile Village always made me laugh when I was a kid, and it still amuses me. It opens with Lemony Snicket telling us, no matter who you are, no matter where you live, and no matter how many people are chasing you, What you don't read is often as important as what you do read. For instance, if you're walking in the mountains and you don't read the sign that says beware of cliff because you are busy reading a joke book instead, you may suddenly find yourself walking on air rather than a sturdy bed of rocks. Then he goes on on this tangent for a little more. And then he says, And if you insist on reading this book instead of something more cheerful, you will most certainly find yourself moaning in despair instead of wriggling in delight. (laughs) Which I just love the idea that there's like any book in the world that can make one wriggle in delight like I don't I love reading and I've loved many books and I don't think any of them have made me wriggle with delight but anyway so he says you'll most certainly find yourself moaning in despair instead of wriggling in delight so if you have any sense at all you will put this book down and pick up another one I know of a book, for instance, called The Littlest Elf, which tells the story of a teensy-weensy little man who scurries around fairyland having all sorts of adorable adventures, and you can see at once that you should probably read The Littlest Elf and wriggle over the lovely things that happened to this imaginary creature in a made-up place instead of reading this book and moaning over the terrible things that happened to the three Baudelaire orphans in the village where I am now typing these very words. And that scene is so good, or that little tangent, that it was the basis for the opening to the... Yeah, so the 2004 film begins with what seems to be an intro to a... Stop motion. Yes. A cutesy, Rudolph-esque stop motion. Mm-hmm, about an elf. And then it kind of cuts to black, and you hear Lemony Snicket say, this is not the film you are going to see. I'm not going to lie, I've seen that movie probably like three times, and it gets me every time. Yeah, the first time, so I saw the movie in theaters when I was a kid, and I remember 
thinking that we had like walked into the wrong theater somehow. I was like, we gotta go. <laughs> oh my God, guys. Pack it up. <laughs> okay, oh, you wanted to describe the town of BFD? Yes, yeah, so this book has one of my favorite settings in the whole series. I love it when they're in the hinterlands. So this book and then book eight and book nine and book 10 too, really. They're just kind of like out in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And it's very ominous, very foreboding, not much civilization. And the civilization that is there is hideous. (laughs) Yeah. I love the description of the town of BFD because it kind of has this strange, creepy Western vibe to it. Yeah. Which is also, yeah, yeah, like out in the desert, which is really played up in the Netflix series too, which I really enjoy. I feel like they got the setting really, really perfect for the Netflix series. It's pretty much just how I pictured that town. So this town is kind of in the middle of the desert. There doesn't appear to be much vegetation. And the Baudelaire's have to walk for a very long time before they actually arrive in the town and says... Even as they approached the town, VFD still looked as hazy as it did from far away. As the children drew closer and closer to their new home, they could see a number of buildings of different heights and widths, separated by streets both narrow and wide, and the Baudelaire's could even see the tall, skinny shapes of lampposts and flagpoles stretching out towards the sky. But everything they saw, from the tip of the highest building to the curve of the narrowest street, was pitch black and seemed to be shaking slightly, as if the entire town were painted on a piece of cloth that was trembling in the wind. The buildings were trembling and the lampposts were trembling, and even the very streets were shaking ever so slightly, and it was like no town the three Baudelaire's had ever seen. It was a mystery, but unlike most mysteries, once the children reached the outskirts of VFD and learned what was causing the trembling effect, they did not feel any better to have the mystery solved. The town was covered in crows. Nearly every inch of every object had a large black bird roosting on it and casting a suspicious eye on the children as they stood at the very edge of the village. I just have always loved that image of this town that seems Mm -hmm. to be an optical illusion almost. And as you get closer and closer, you're like, well, like, it'll stop when I get closer. Like, it'll firm up. Like, you imagine, like, a hazy mirage. Mm -hmm. but... But it just doesn't. And also, of course, the... It's a very obvious reference to Hitchcock's film, The Birds. Mm-hmm. But as a kid, I thought he invented this. And I was like, wow, yep. what a neat idea. A whole town covered in birds. <laughs> what could go wrong? Tippy Hedren might disagree. <laughs> I love Olaf's demeanor in this book. So he's a detective. And there's always like this extra little element. Like he has a job, you know, in whatever thing he does, but there's also some added thing he has going on. You know, like when he was a a running coach, he also had a turban, you know? And Mm -hmm. when he was Gunther, he had to have an absurd accent. And now (laughs) that he is a detective, well, let's just start with his disguise first. He was wearing a turquoise blazer that was so brightly colored that it made the Baudelaire squint and a pair of silver pants decorated with tiny mirrors that glinted in the morning sun. A pair of enormous sunglasses covered the entire upper half of his face, hiding his one eyebrow and his shiny, shiny eyes. On his feet were a pair of bright green plastic shoes with yellow plastic lightning bolts sticking out of them, covering his ankle and hiding his tattoo. But most unpleasant of all was the fact that Olaf was wearing no shirt, only a thick gold chain with a detective's badge in the center of it. 
And then, it's just not cool, Olaf said, snapping his fingers to emphasize the word cool, to dismiss suspects from the scene of the crime until Detective Dupin gives the okay. But surely the orphans aren't suspects, one of the elders says. They're only children after all. It's just not cool, Count Olaf says, snapping his fingers again, to disagree with Detective Dupin. And he does this the whole time. Oh yeah, at one point they're wondering who Jacques is. Who in the world is Jacques? Asked an elder. I'm confused. It's not cool, Olaf said with a snap. To be confused. So let me see if I can help you. <laughs> it's one of my favorite disguises of his. It's also, I think, one of my favorite performances by Neil Patrick Harris in the Netflix series. Because uh-huh. though he insists on scatting like a jazz singer but Uh he's terrible at it and it's just really fun Mm, very good i also love oh my god the elders this town the rules yes so as we have expressed (laughs) the people in this town are deeply unpleasant as referenced by their punishment for any and all rule breaking which is to burn the offender at the stake after the orphans are accused of murdering jacques one of the elders points out that since rule number 201 clearly states no murdering the Baudelaire should be burned at the stake. But another, hold on a moment, another elder said. We can't simply burn people at the stake whenever we want. The Baudelaire's looked at one another, relieved that one citizen seemed immune to mob psychology. I have a very important appointment in 10 minutes, the elder continued. So it's too late to do it now. How about tonight after dinner? That's no good, said another member of the council. I'm having a dinner party then. What about tomorrow afternoon? Yes, someone said from the crowd. Right after lunch. That's the perfect time. So... And the townspeople collectively work around one another's schedules to make sure that they can all be present for the burning of the children. It's a heartwarming moment. (laughs) I love to see a community come together. Yes. So now it's time for, and now a word from us kids, part two. Knack says, the Baudelaire's will have to crack the code in some couplets, reveal Count Olaf in his disguise, and plan a daring escape. Will the Baudelaire children be able to use their talents to stop Count Olaf? Or will they finally lose at the dangerous game that they are playing? <laughs> Five stars. I love, will they finally lose at the dangerous game they're playing? Right, it's like, like they're enjoying themselves. <laughs> exactly. It's like, that's not exactly what's going on here. Like, it's like the dangerous... entirely fair. Yeah. The dangerous game that they're playing is, I guess, trying to stay alive. Yeah, like, so cut it out. You know what I'm saying? Just lose all. How long are you going to keep doing this? (laughs) Oh, Knack. You should write um, blurbs for the backs of books. Do you want to read Cuddles 13? Sure. So Cuddles 13 came back with another review. What was Cuddles' first review? Oh, she was the one who seriously didn't see the relationship between Esme and Count Olaf coming. So Cuddles 13 tells us this time, it was a cool book with the Quagmere's Quagmires. Yeah, that's right. Like the Boldenaris. <laughs> it's a niche reference to a previous and now a word from us kids segment. Um, yeah, so she says, It was a cool book with the Quagmires hidden and all, but I absolutely hate the elders. Four stars. And I agree. I also enjoy the Quagmires being hidden, not speaking for most of the book. <laughs> The one part that I do take issue with, though, is what they do say is all said by Isadora in couplets. Yeah. If we could just make it so that the Quagmires aren't speaking at all, no speaking, I no think writing. that would be preferable. Right. But I did love the non-speaking. 
And I do absolutely hate the elders. Yeah. That's... I think it's interesting that she phrased it as though hating the elders was why it got four stars instead of five. I think we're supposed to hate the elders. Right. But they are pretty insufferable. For instance, when they threaten to burn Klaus at the stake for putting too many nuts on their sundae. Yes. My favorite part is that the elder isn't like, you did. He's already eaten the sundae, and he's like, you might have put too many nuts on it. Yeah. <laughs> so, nobody likes the elders. Mm-mm. But Emma Bookworm, five, says, this book is awesome. I wish I had talents like Violet Sunny and or Klaus. I actually am a Klaus. I read so many books. As you can tell by my username, I'm basically a living recommendation. That is the cutest shit ever. Once I read these books, I got into this violet phase where I tried to invent these awesome things. Obviously, they didn't work. Otherwise, I would have been Emma Inventor. Five stars. (gasps) This is my favorite review that any kid has ever written on, except maybe the kid whose neighbor had the truck full of Twinkies. (laughs) <laughs> this is my second favorite review. Yeah, me too. Isn't it adorable? Oh, I hope Emma Bookworm 5 never stops reading. I know. And I hope that she continues to emulate book characters in positive ways. What if she'd been like, I went through a sunny phase where I broke all my teeth? <laughs> all right. Um- uh, last one. Our last one comes from Lawsie. I just wanted to include her because she's had several reviews before in previous Sousa Unfortunate Events episodes. And she has, in the past, I think, been pretty afraid of the books. But this one, she says, absolutely love it. Five stars. So finally that's got Lawsie on board. You know board. what that is? Character development. <laughs> and that's that on growth. Uh, Do we want to talk about the book was better? Yeah. All right. So book six and book seven were covered in the Netflix series, A Series of Unfortunate Events, episodes 11 through 14, which was part of season two, which was released in 2018. And like season one and the season three that would come next, season two was critically acclaimed. It has currently a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. And notably, these episodes introduced Lucy Punch, who becomes a recurring character as Esme Squalor, and I think she does a great job, and Tony Hale as Jerome Squalor, who is also very well cast. Indeed. (laughs) So I found this one review written by Ben Travers uh, for IndieWire, who talked about season two, and I wanted to share it because it's funny to me when I hear that something came out in 2018, I'm like, oh yeah, that's extremely recent. But it's actually, weirdly enough, several years ago now at this point, and we were in a different cultural political situation. Not better, just different. (laughs) Not, not. (laughs) Things haven't been better for a while. No. Maybe things were never better. Yeah. But it was interesting because a lot of the conversation around a series of unfortunate events, so these books were written, of course, in the late 90s and early to mid 2000s, but the Netflix series came out. I think the first season premiered like a week after Trump was inaugurated. So it's kind of hard to divorce the series from that political context, especially a series about the nature of good and evil and the importance of kindness (laughs) and all those little things you know and also like reading and incompetence yeah would you like to read this so this is a quote from ben travers review of season two 
where he quotes Jacqueline, who is played by Sarah Canning. These are dark days, says Jacqueline, Mr. Poe's secretary. For context, Jacqueline secretly works for the VFD and is currently making phone calls from underneath her desk under the, ki- under the guise of having picked up a pencil. And Travers says, Mr. Poe calls her on it, but only enough to mock her. He doesn't find it suspicious so much as stupid, which allows her to keep doing it, even though it's infuriating to remember why she has to hide in the first place. He's her boss. She's 1,000 times smarter, but the buffoon is still in power. That's a recurrent theme of the series, from the many guardians who can't recognize Count Olaf when he's standing right in front of them, to Count Olaf himself. Those in control don't earn it so much as they have it. How they obtain such a high position might be a plot problem in another time, a sticking point for viewers who think it's unrealistic for idiots to hold higher office, but not now. Today, it's the status quo. The corrupt maintain their power by manipulating others. Count Olaf uses elaborate disguises, voice alterations, and made-up stories to get what he wants, or he merely takes it by force. He goes on to say the newspaper is an even stronger parallel to the real world. Though Lemony Snicket would never utter the phrase fake news, he doesn't have to when so much misinformation is, quote, confirmed by the headlines of the Daily Punctilio. And therein lies the importance of the series. It recognizes our only hope for the future are those who are going to live it. We need smart kids, educated kids, and noble kids. At a time when we're marching for our lives, a series of unfortunate events highlights what kind of lives we're marching for. The Baudelaire's and everyone like them. So then Ben Travers goes on to say that he did find the series a little bit repetitious, a little bit tiring, which I agree is kind of one potential downside of the fact that every book is given two episodes, is that they have... I mean, on the one hand, it's it's allowed them to make the plot more complex, but also when you know how every episode is going to end before it begins, you can get a little bit... I can, I can feel a little bit tiresome. Yeah. I usually am not in the mood to watch more than like two in a row. But then he goes on to say, some may argue that's part of the point. The world does not let up because you want it to, and unfortunate events simply refuses to alter its pace. And then he says, that seems a little too convenient to believe, but I could buy into the case that kids need repetition. They enjoy it. Adults can too, especially those who can enjoy the series as an episodic take on each book instead of a serialized assessment of them all. Overall, he still praises the series, especially its production value. All right. So this these books continue in the tradition of illusions particularly allusions to like literary references, or artistic references, or historical references. There's a lot of fun allusions in this book. I enjoyed looking different words up when they would pop up because I have figured out at this point that Lemony Snicket rarely includes a name that's not a reference to something. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, Veblen Hall, which is where the inn auction is held in book six, is probably a reference to Thorstein Veblen or Thorstein Veblen. He was an American economist and a sociologist who during his lifetime emerged as a well-known critic of capitalism, which is a funny um, reference to put when we're talking about an auction where the wealthy just buy absurd things that they don't need. And all that of the will money. only be popular for a moment in time. Right. And all of the money, of course, just goes to Esme. It's not even going to a charity. Speaking of Esme, her her full name is Esme Gigi Genevieve Squalor, which is probably a reference to J.D. Salinger's short story for Esme with Love and Squalor. And Jerome Squalor shares the first name Jerome with author J.D. Salinger. I did not know that J was short for Jerome. 
I didn't either. I don't like it. Let's just say it isn't. <laughs> there we go. Heard it here first. Do you want to do, do you the next few? Sure. The Verne Invention Museum, which is said to be located in the city, is a reference to Jules Verne, a science fiction author. And the Akhmatova Bookstore, which is also located in the city, is a reference to Russian poet Anna Akhmatova. And there is also uh, Pincus Hospital, where Sonny was born, is an ironic reference to Gregory Goodwin Pincus, the inventor of the contraceptive pill. Ah, <laughs> uh, good one, Lemony. Yep. And then, of course, 667 Dark Avenue, which is the address of the penthouse apartment where they live in book six, is only one number away from 666, which is a number that's often associated with evil. And in an English joke, 667 is the neighbor of the beast. Also, there are 66 floors in the building. The doorman says that there's either 48 or 84, but really there's 66, which is the average of 48 or 84. Ah. Mm-hmm. And so there are 66 floors in the building, and this is the sixth book, so you do the math. Man. <laughs> Some spooky math. Another kind of obvious reference is the Nevermore Tree, which is, of course, a reference to Edgar Allan Poe's poem, The Raven, in which a raven repeats the words, nevermore. And it's possible that the strict rules and the Council of Elders might be a reference to The Giver by Lois Lowry, which we read in an earlier episode, because that story also exists in a community with very limited freedoms and an incredibly strict board of elders who are also referred to as the Council of Elders. Yeah. I preferred this council of elders because at least they have fun hats. <laughs> I was about to say, and they don't necessarily kill weak children, but then I realized only because they didn't get the chance to. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's child murder in both books. Yep. Well, actually, there's not child murder in this book. There's repeated attempted child murder. Correct. And then some adult murder. Yes, plenty of that. Also, I'm not a bird expert, so I don't know if I'm saying these right, but five of Sonny's utterances in this book, including Pippet, Grebe, Merganser, Tohi, and Vario, are all names of birds. That's a good one. I missed that one. Yeah. I caught the fish in the last book, but mm -hmm. that one slipped right by me. Same. So another reference, Sonny uses the word Scylla to explain that it would be better to live with regret on the self-sustaining hot air mobile home than to be burned to death at the stake. And this is a reference to one of a pair of sea monsters in Homer's The Odyssey. The two monsters live so close together that it is virtually impossible to avoid both. And so Odysseus chose to head towards Scylla, the less dangerous of the two. What is Scylla? I don't know. I don't know. I feel like it's a whirlpool. No, it looks like it's got lots of arms. Huh. Oh, it's a maiden with a tail and dog head sprouting from her body. Oof, busted. <laughs> okay, anyway. Yeah, so if you are interested in our Your Fave is Problematic segment, you should go back and listen to our first series of Unfortunate Events episode because we're not doing that again, so. Too tiring. Yeah, moving on. Shall we discuss lessons? I think that's a terrific idea, Sarah. One thing that I really enjoy about this book is how it depicts the absolute absurdity and superfluousness of extreme wealth. <laughs> Esme is the 1%. And she has all of this money for providing 
no important services to the community that we can tell. I mean, she's only the sixth most important financial advisor in the city. Mm-hmm. And I think we can assume that the financial advising that she is doing is for other absurdly wealthy people. Right, and probably just telling them that they should invest in weasels or billboards with weasels on them. And so it's it's a funny, obviously, like, over-the-top portrait of extreme wealth, but I don't know. I think it's a pretty damning critique. I think we can also agree that at this point in our society, that kind of wealth is about as funny and over-the-top. Well, (laughs) it's not funny in the slightest. But we are definitely reaching that point. When we have billionaires in space while people are dying in the streets from cold. Yeah. uh, Yeah, we're there. For sure. Also, the idea that philanthropy largely (laughs) exists to enrich the wealthy. Yup. Esme's auction, literally just all the money goes back to her. And it's just a way for all of the rich fancy people in town to show to other rich fancy people in town that they are also rich and fancy so it's a whole big meaningless charade and luckily i think the children reading see right through it love it similar note the seventh book i feel like really gets into power structure and i love the villain of the seventh book i love that one of the primary villains is a cop There is a great line from Luciana after she harpoons one of the crows. And obviously the townspeople are like, oh my god, she just broke the law. And she says, officers of the law are allowed to break rules. And on a similar note, Sarah, would you like to give us a little bit of advice about who should be in charge? Oh, yeah. So we also learned an important lesson for book seven, that allowing power-hungry geriatrics to make and enforce all the rules is a terrible way to govern a society. And I would argue that anyone living in the United States today could also tell you that. I like got serious Supreme Court vibes from the Council of Elders, dressed all in black, obsessed with rules, not the so much big care- hat with the dead bird on it. <laughs> not big caring one. so much about the outcomes of the rules as the rules themselves. Mm-hmm. And also they just get to decide everything and you have to listen because that's the way it is. It's a grim situation. Sure is. Also, while we're on this political bent, as I was reading this, and especially as I was watching the Netflix series, Esme Squalor gives off serious Kirsten Cinema vibes. Like that is the most <laughs> devastating blow you could give to Esme or Kirsten. <laughs> I think it's safe to say that two people's feelings would be hurt. <laughs> like just. The narcissism, the outfits. The belief that you did something. Yeah. (laughs) And that, like, you are, that you're the star of this show. Uh Uh-huh. The show being our suffering. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We laugh because it helps us keep the tears in. And while we're on that tangent... Joe Manchin is Sir from book four. Oh, yes! Joe Manchin is totally Sir. He runs a lumber mill, endorses pollution. Yep. And I can't speak to whether or not Joe Manchin is gay. I don't know. I don't know either. But I didn't even know that Sir was gay. 
I still need to rewatch the Netflix series. <laughs> if this is news to you, you need to go back and you need to listen to our previous episode, and you should watch the Netflix series. Any other politician parallels? I'm try- I've been trying to figure out who Jerome is. I feel like Jerome is like a lot of the Democratic Party. Definitely. You know, he's like, I, oh I think gosh, most of their I- guardians. Yeah. Someone's got to do something. Yeah. Haven't we agreed that Joe Biden is Mr. Poe? Yeah. <laughs> A better bet than being in the clutches of evil itself, but Mm -hmm. you're right. The entire Democratic Party is summed up by Jerome. Oh, what a time to be alive. I mean, I guess Olaf is Trump, but... Olaf is Republicans in general. Yeah. If you are listening to this and you are, I don't know, surprised to hear any of this from us, I guess you just didn't listen to earlier episodes. If you are a Republican and you're listening to it, this show isn't for you, I guess. Yeah, so bye. You can stop anytime. (laughs) Or you can stop being a Republican. Oh, we'd like that even better. Yeah, then you can keep listening. It's a Mm win-win for me, for you, society. For everyone else you interact with for the rest of your life. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, well, I think that just about does it. Shall we um, move into rating? I would love to. Let's rate this book out of 10 aqueous martinis, or books, excuse me. So collectively, personally, I would give book six and book seven 10 out of 10 aqueous martinis. These are a couple of my favorite books in the series, and I really enjoyed rereading them. I love book six. I'm not quite as jazzed about book seven. Again, just too much of Isadora. So I'm going to give this book... The two books combined, nine out of 10 aqueous martinis. But again, I second Sarah. I so enjoy rereading these books. Yes. Sarah, where can they find us? You guys can find us on Twitter and Instagram at reading underscore recess. And you can also email us at readingduringrecesspod at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, please rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend to listen. And all you six most important financial advisors out there, stay reading. <laughs>